This morning we are returning to our study of the book of Proverbs, and so I would encourage you, if you have Bibles or whatever device you happen to use, I want to try to be as up-to-date as I can, uh, but turn in the Scriptures, the Word of God, to our Scripture this morning, which is out of Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. Let's turn our hearts to the very Word of God as God, through the Holy Spirit, addresses you personally and us as a people through his word. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let's pray together. Father, you have said in your word that it pleases you that through the folly of what is preached, it pleases you to save those who believe. And so I pray for all of us here as you address us by your spirit, through your word, through the folly and the foolishness of preaching, that you would save those who believe. Help us to come with soft hearts and tender hearts to your word and to listen what your word has to teach us on really what is a difficult topic. In some way, it's plain and clear from your scripture, but difficult because of our own flesh the world, and certainly the evil one. So we pray that you'll be at work through your spirit, and we thank you for the promise of your scripture that says, your word does not return to you void, but has a success and accomplishes exactly what you have set out for it to accomplish. And so it's with the confidence in your promise that we approach your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know that I follow a style of preaching that is known as expository preaching which basically means you take one text or one section of the Bible at a time. And one of the advantages, there are many advantages to teaching and preaching in this way. One of the ways is, one of the advantages of it is it disciplines you. You can't just speak on your favorite topics. You can't go kind of, hmm, that's hard. I'll push that to the side. You kind of have to take what the Bible gives us. 
What's it giving us this week? You're getting a sermon on sex, human sexuality. That's where we are with Proverbs chapter 5. In some ways, as I prayed, it's a very clear topic to preach upon. I think the Bible's teaching is pretty simple and pretty clear, but it is also because of the world we live in, our own flesh, the evil one who will attack certainly the family and anything that God holds dear and is close to God's heart, human sexuality ends up to be a very difficult topic for us to think about. It's one of those things that whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's relational tension, the whole idea of what it means to, you have a family history. We all have family histories. We all have body image. We have tension. We have physical exhaustion. We have self-image issues. We have all sorts of issues that come into play. The Bible, though, is extremely realistic about the way it handles the topic of sex. The Bible is realistic about how it handles every topic. And the book of Proverbs is all about human flourishing, genuine humanness, and human sexuality is a wonderful gift and a part of genuine humanness. Sex is a created gift from God, and in and of itself, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, it is a good gift. What corrupts or mars something is not the thing in and of itself. This is one of the things that's been very difficult in the church's teaching of it throughout history. Church history has had a very ambivalent record of its teaching regarding human sexuality. One of the things we have to remember is sex is a beautiful thing. What Mars or corrupts it is not the thing in itself, but our rebellion, human rebellion, our using it, this gift for our own purposes. The context of Proverbs 5 is very simple. It's a father addressing his sons, not just his son, but his sons. Verse 7 says, hear now, O my sons. So he's preparing them for adulthood, for maturity. Though the text doesn't say specifically, more than likely, and scholars and commentators tend to agree on this, he's teaching his teenage sons. He's preparing them for adulthood. And one of the things that I think is that these are topics that if you look at two of the most God-given institutions, you've got what? You've got the church and you've got the family, and they ought to be partnering together and stuff. And I think one of the things that happens too often is the church shies away from our task and our discipleship and our spiritual formation of people. We need a proper reorientation of what the church is meant to be in God's economy. And I love how Eugene Peterson and some of his writings put it. He's talking about the church here. And so I'm talking about the church and the family coming together to disciple, to spiritually form people of God in the community, in the covenant family of God. And Peterson puts it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit formed the church to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Nowhere do we see more of the world's country of death than in what the world feeds our children and us in regards to human sexuality. Peterson writes, church is the core element and the strategy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the church is created by the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. It is not that kingdom complete, but it is a witness to that kingdom. He goes on to say, church is an appointed gathering of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection. In a world in which death too often gets the biggest headlines, 
The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus's life. Ray Ortland, in his commentary on this passage, says, God speaks into every area of our lives, including human sexuality. The gospel calls us into both form and freedom, both structure and liberation. He writes, conservative people love form, restraint, and control, especially in sex. Progressive people love freedom and openness and choices, especially in sex. Both see a part of the truth, but the gospel tells us the whole truth. And when we say you will know the truth and the truth sets us free, we don't mean just a part of the truth. We mean the whole truth. Ortland writes, sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the whole house down. Proverbs 5 is saying, keep the fire in the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. What does Proverbs have to say about human sexuality? What does it have to say as a father is addressing his sons, as God, our heavenly father, is addressing his church so that rather than following the world which is makes an idol out of sex and is sex-obsessed, we can set the pace and truly be leaders and be servant leaders in the world. This text teaches us two things. God gives us two gifts from this text about our human sexuality. First, it gives us protective parameters. And second, it gives us positive purpose. And friends, we need both gifts, and we need to embrace them. First of all, the text begins with the words, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Again, in verse 7, the father sits down his sons and he says, and, and now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. So here is a dad with his sons and he's warning them. He's being loving, kind, gentle, yet forceful. See, what does a wise parent do? Or what is the first thing a wise parent or God as our father do? They are very realistic about the world they are in and warning them both of the dangers and of our particular vulnerabilities. Here's a dad with his son. Here's God with his children. And he's saying, you will be tempted. You are vulnerable. Because sex is such a wonderful gift of God, it is also something very powerful. It's wonderful, yet it's powerful, so beware. Look at verse 3. It says, for the lips of a forbidden woman. And ladies, don't get upset with me here. Okay? In this text, what do you have here? You have the father teaching his son, so he's warning them of the dangers of adultery. Okay? Women could be sitting here thinking, say, hey, what about the guys? Don't they? Yes, guys, we struggle, tempted, vulnerable, all of that. There's no one passage of Scripture that can teach everything. And so we're not picking and the text is not picking, but here's a father teaching and training his sons. And so look what he says. He says, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. In other words, the internet, Facebook, that text message, that person that's giving you, they're making you feel a little extra special. There's going to be a, an allure to that, a temptation. They're sweet like honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but listen to what the text says. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. 
Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. In other words, the stakes are high. The consequences are real. And before we think, oh, God's just being mean. He's being arbitrary. He doesn't like... No. He is setting parameters to protect us. It's out of love. Look at the very end of the text for a second. Verses 21 and 22, because this is what we have to recognize. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Friends, I want to tell you something. God wants you to be free. He wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to enjoy life within the parameters of his loving, benevolent lordship. And it's only within his loving, benevolent lordship that you will experience true freedom. Look at the text. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare us. Language is so important. Do you hear the language that is used here? Now, I'm not a hunter, so this illustration will fall short. Okay, I play golf and I watch sports. I've never hunted in my life. You definitely, I believe, you know, but you don't want to do this. But I'm picturing now, okay? I've seen pictures of this before. They're out in the woods and they're trying to hunt a boar or something like that. And what do you do? You put one of those nets high up in the tree so that when the boar steps on it, what happens? The net comes, the boar's still alive, but he's what? He's ensnared in it. He's caught, he's struggling, he thinks he's free, but he's not. That's the warning that's given. The world, the internet, every TV show, almost every TV show is saying this is exactly how you ought to live, and it's promising what? Freedom. But what is the text saying? The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. God is setting parameters to love us. In the New Testament, just to give you New Testament, Jesus spoke about God never abandoning us. He said to his disciples in John chapter 14, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Meaning now in the person of the Spirit, he says, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. You know, one of the ways I think we are so much left as orphans in the world is by our lack of discipline, our lack of boundaries, our lack of parameters. God will not leave us as orphans. He loves us way too much. And Tim Keller, in an incredible article on the Redeemer City to City website, has written an article about God and sex, and he puts it this way. He says... Sex only works in the fullest way God intended for one man and woman within the exclusive, permanent, legal commitment of marriage. Put another way, sex is a God-invented way to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. That cannot be said outside the permanent, exclusive covenantal commitment of marriage. The modern sexual revolution finds this rule so unrealistic as to be ludicrous, even harmful, and psychologically unhealthy. That's what the world tells us. Yet, Dr. Keller writes, despite the incredulity of modern people, this has been the unquestioned uniform view and law of not only one, but all the Christian churches, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant, as well as in the Jewish, Muslim, and most older pagan morality as well. 
That's why verse 8, here's a father teaching his sons. And the key, what does he say? Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Verses 9 to 11 says, if you think the consequences are not real, look with me at verses 9 and 11. They tell the cost of sexual foolishness, the wider impact of our choices and foolishness. He says, lest you give your honor to others, there can be a consequence to your reputation. And your years to the merciless, lest strangers take the fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreign. In other words, it'll have a financial and economic consequence. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. There are consequences we don't recognize, social, financial, economic, to our reputation, ramifications of the choices we make. But the most important is certainly our spiritual Again, we live in a world that says this is no big deal. Why are you making such a big deal out of this? Think about it, what it means to be ensnared and held fast in the cords of sin. And I want you to have a view of God. God wants you to love and enjoy the created gifts he's given within the boundaries and parameters he has established. In Dr. Keller's words, He wants it to be such a thing that within the exclusive, permanent, covenantal commitment, it is a sign that says, I belong to you. There's safety in that. That's why that gives emotional security. But the biggest impact it has is on a spiritual. To tell yourself it's really no big deal, why are we making such a big deal? I want you to listen to these words from a 20th century preacher. His name's David Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers, in my opinion, of the 20th century. He writes, be careful how you treat God, my friends. You may say to yourself, I can sin against God, and then, of course, I can repent and go back and find God whenever I want him. He writes, go ahead and try that. And you will sometimes find that not only can you not find God, but that you do not even want to. You will be aware of a terrible hardness in your heart, and you can do nothing about it. And then you suddenly realize that it is God punishing you in order to reveal your sinfulness and your vileness to you. And when he does that, there is only one thing to do. Turn back to him and say, oh God, do not go on dealing with me judiciously, though I certainly deserve it. Soften my heart. Melt my heart. I cannot do this myself. Cast yourself utterly and completely upon his mercy and upon his compassion. True freedom is found only within the confines. Only to the degree, and you've heard me say this many, many times, only to the degree you bring your heart, your life, and yes, your sexuality under the lordship of Christ, do you experience what the Proverbs wants you to experience, genuine human flourishing. That's the first point, protective parameters. Second point, positive purpose. Look with me at verse 15. And of course, the first place is within marriage. Verse 15 says, drink water from your own cistern. And remember, this is poetry, Hebrew poetry, flowing water from your own well. The Bible here is being very realistic, talking about a man's sexual desires and the power of them. He says, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone. Again, within the confines of exclusive, permanent, covenantal commitment, and not for strangers within you. That's why the very passionate words of verses 18 to 20 are the father's prayers for his son 
and his sons and his future daughter-in-law. Now I want you to notice something. This is completely countercultural to how our society views sex and sexuality. This is not the conservative repressed view that says sex is bad, avoid it, nor is it kind of the secular society's view that says it's all about personal happiness and personal fulfillment. Again, listen to the words of Tim Keller. He says, the Bible views sex not primarily as self-fulfillment, but as a way to know Christ and build his kingdom. He says, that view undercuts both the traditional society's idolatry of sex for social standing and the secular society's idolatry of sex for personal fulfillment. He writes, sex is sacred because with God, it co-creates a new soul. Sex propagates the human race, which means its purpose is not merely for the building up of a family name. No, the purpose of sex is to create families of disciples. In other words, to establish new kingdom communities. And ironically, the main way we learn this is through the Bible's remarkable attitude towards singleness. He says, Christianity, unlike most traditional religions or cultures, holds out singleness as a viable way of life. He says, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul were single. Jesus spoke about those who remain unmarried in order to better serve the kingdom of God. Paul says singleness is often better. He writes this in 1 Corinthians, for ministering as a sign of the coming kingdom. So before we make an idol out of marriage and family, we need to pay attention to the Bible's view of singleness, or if you don't have children. Keller quotes another writer who writes, one of the few clear differences between Christianity and Judaism is Christianity's entertainment of the idea of singleness as the paradigm way of life for its followers. He says it was legitimate not because sex was thought to be a particularly questionable activity, but because the mission of the church was such that in the times we live, between the times, the church required those who were capable of complete service to the kingdom. And he says, and we must remember that the sacrifice made by the single was the much more significant sacrifice comparable to sex because it was the giving up of heirs. He says there was no more radical act than this because it is the clearest institutional expression that one's future is not guaranteed by the nuclear family, but by the church, the new family of God. Do you hear what that writer's saying? The church is part of the means of grace that God has given us, the family of God. The institution of family is to produce new families of disciples for the family of God because, and this is one of the things Proverbs 5 is teaching as satisfying and as great and as wonderful gift that sex is, Christ and our ultimate marriage to Christ is better than sex. Turn again to the text and look at what our hope is. In verse 12, it's amazing. Look at what he says here in this path. He says, and, and you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. What's happening here? is you have a man who's experienced sexual foolishness who's coming to his senses much like the parable of the prodigal son that Shane read earlier in the service. Ray Ortland puts it this way. He says, there's a way for healing and it begins with coming to our senses in humility. 
The first step to coming to our senses is always humility. Dr. Ortland says the sexually foolish man finally faces himself. He owns up like the prodigal son. That young man in Jesus' parable looked at himself and how low he had fallen. He said, I'm at the brink of utter ruin. But I have a father. I have a home. Why stay here? He got up and went home. And while he was still a long way off, his father ran to him and kissed him. The father did not shame him, but rejoiced over him. Remember in the beginning of this message, I talked about how difficult a topic and difficult a struggle human sexuality is. Friends, you need to remember, no matter what you've been through, no matter what your life has been like, no matter either what you've done, what you've experienced, what you've gone through, maybe what you're going through now, there is hope in the gospel. If you turn to Christ, if you run to Christ, if you surrender your Christ, here's the promise of the gospel. Your father will not, nor will he ever, shame you. Do you recognize that when the prodigal returned home, every expectation he had was to be shamed? That was completely what would have been expected in that culture of his day. But what did he find? But while he was a long way off, the father looking, seeking, pulling up his skirt, running after him, kissed him and embraced him, welcomed him home and said, the son of mine was lost, he was found. What does the Bible say? If you're in Christ, if you turn to Christ, if you go to Christ, you just ask him to forgive you. Therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Does that mean it's passed away 50% of time and you still have to bring up your guilt? No, it's passed away. It's gone. 100%. It is completely gone. And what is before you? The new has come. And Martin Luther... And I want you to ponder and meditate on these words as we go to the Lord's Supper and as we think about what it means for all of us, married, divorced, single, widowed, whatever your situation, what it means. Because you know what the greatest metaphor for being in Christ that the Bible talks about? It talks about Christ as our bridegroom and the church as his bride. And listen to how Martin Luther put it. He says, faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. From such a marriage, it follows that Christ and the soul hold all things in common, whether for better or worse. This means that what Christ possesses belongs to the believing soul and what the soul possesses belongs to Christ. Thus, Christ possesses all good things and holiness and righteousness these now belong to the believing soul. The soul possesses lots of vices and sin. These now belong to Christ. Christ, the rich, the noble, the holy bridegroom, takes in marriage this poor, contemptible, and sinful little prostitute, takes away all her evil and bestows all his goodness upon her. It is no longer possible for sin to overwhelm her, for she is now found in Christ. I want you to think about this. Whatever you have gone through, whatever you might be going through right now, listen to the offer of the gospel. And I pray, friends, that Spruce Creek Church will never get beyond the gospel. 
Whether you don't believe, and this may be, and I'm inviting you your first day of believing, or whether you've been in Christ for 50, 60 years, we never get beyond the gospel. But listen to the reality of the gospel. What Christ possesses belongs to the believing soul through our union with him. There is no pure, more pure, more whole, more human, more devoted, more lovely, more noble, more courageous human being than Jesus Christ. And through your union with that, you possess that. And what the soul possesses, our vices, our sin, our lusts, our fornication, I mean, our, has been transferred to Christ. The soul possesses, Luther says, lots of vices and sin. These now belong to Christ. Your ultimate marriage, the best marriage. I don't mean to offend any of you who have great marriages. It doesn't compare to the marriage to Christ. Will you run to Christ? Will you turn to Christ? Will you surrender to your husband? Father, help us to behold the glory of our bridegroom, Jesus. Help us that our lives, our very lives, would be committed to beholding his glory and enjoying him forever. Forgive us that we don't allow our minds and our hearts and affections to get beyond the simple. Help us that we're complacent. Help us to enjoy him knowing us and us knowing him. As we come to the supper now, feed us with the body and blood of Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.